Amen. We are continuing our sermon series. We're looking at a different book of the Bible each week. This week we are in 1 Chronicles. Next week we are in 2 Chronicles. And then we're going to take a break for a few weeks for the holidays. And so if you are reading through the Bible with us, this would be a good time to get ahead in your reading, especially when it comes to the book of Psalms. I've had several of you ask me, what are we going to do when we get to Psalms? And I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do on my end. But on your end, in terms of reading ahead, you know, it's tough. The book of Psalms is a big book, 150 Psalms, longest in the Bible. And so if you want to take the holiday break and read 50 a week, that would be one way to get ahead. Just an idea. All right. Your call. Uh, we are getting pretty close to finishing the history section of the Old Testament. The history section is Genesis through Esther, and then we will go to the poetry section, and then we'll go to the prophets. Uh, but First Chronicles is a part of that history. Uh, but I've actually chosen for us to look at and read a psalm from the book of First Chronicles. It's a collection of several of David's psalms. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 16. If you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 8 through 36. And just a reminder, this is the very inspired Word of God. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him, sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works, glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Israel, His servant, children of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever, the word that He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant He made with Abraham, His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, He allowed no one to trespass, oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Say also, Save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may You bless the reading and preaching of Your Word and use it to prepare us for that day 
when the trees of the forest sing for joy because you have returned to judge the earth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Anytime we study a book of the Bible, read a book of the Bible, it's always important to ask these questions. Who is the author? Who is the original audience? Uh, what was the situation of the author as he was writing? What is the situation of the audience as they received uh, the writing? And sometimes we know the answers to these questions. Sometimes we don't know the answers. Sometimes the, the way you interpret and understand a book will turn on understanding these questions. Uh, and in fact, that's the case with First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles covers the same time period as the book of Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Um, but it, so, so the, the material is the same, but it is written for a very specific purpose to a very specific audience, and that that impacts the way we read and understand the book. Uh, it was written around 400 BC. So it was written during this time to a community of God's people who had been exiled to Babylon, and they've, been re they've returned to Jerusalem, and they've rebuilt, and he's writing, and he's telling them about this past, a past that they can read about in First and Second Kings and Second Samuel, but he's writing the same past, including a lot of the same language from those documents, but he's writing for a very specific purpose. He's writing to talk about their past, but to give them hope in the present and in their future. And so I'm referring to this as kingdom hope. And I want us to begin by talking about kingdom hope and the past. I want you to notice this psalm includes a number of commands. There's a command to give thanks, to sing, to declare, to ascribe. But notice in verse 12, the command is to remember. Remember the past. Remember the wondrous works that He has done. Verse 15, remember His covenant forever. In verses 16 and 17, He mentions these individuals from the past. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And He wants His audience to remember and also to see themselves as being a part of. They, they are the continuation of, of this past. They are the recipients of this past, and he wants them to think of themselves in this way. In fact, that's why he starts out the book with these genealogies. For those of you who are reading along with us, chapters 1 through 9, let's be honest, can be challenging to read. It's filled with genealogies for nine straight chapters. And if you're like me, your eyes might get, eyelids get a little heavy, you know, and you kind of look ahead and go, how many more chapters until... We're through with genealogies. But, but if you step back and look at it from the bigger picture, it, it makes a lot of sense. He's starting out in chapter 1 with a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam. And in my Bible, the heading says, from Adam to Abraham. And then if you look at chapter 9, the heading says, a genealogy of the returned exiles. He includes his audience in the genealogy. Why? I think he wants them to connect the dots. You, you are a part of the genealogy that goes back to Adam. You are a part of the genealogy that goes back to Abraham. You are the part of the genealogy that goes back to David. He wants them to connect those dots and see that they are a people who is living in, 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 in this tradition. They are a part of this. And, and he emphasizes the unity. Israel has just come through a major division, the northern and southern kingdoms. We talked about that over the past couple of weeks. 
And so he wants them to see themselves as one united people, one united people under God. So he uses the phrase all Israel 47 times in these books. All Israel. All Israel as one. Look, for example, with me at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, so all Israel was recorded in genealogies. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then all Israel gathered together to David. Chapter 11, verse 4. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem. Chapter 12, verse 38. And all the rest of Israel were of a single mind. Notice that, that phrase, single mind to make David king. He wants his audience to be single-minded. He wants them to be unified. He wants them to think of themselves as we are all Israel. And we are the recipients of this, this past tradition. And, and one reason for this is because of worship. He wants them to be united in their worship. And worship is a major theme of these books. So we're going to see a lot about the temple. You're going to see a lot about Jerusalem. And, and there's a big emphasis on this idea of the worship of God by God's people. And so he's going to give them the history of the temple. And therefore, he recounts David's sin in chapter 21, the sin of counting the troops. You know, he doesn't mention David's sin with Bathsheba. Why not? It, it doesn't really fit within his main purposes of writing the book to this particular group. But the story of David sinning by counting the troops, it does fit within his purposes. Why? Because David sinned, God's wrath came and killed, I think, 70,000 Israelites as a result. And then David was to build an altar and to sacrifice on the altar, to avert, to satisfy God's wrath. And where was that altar that David built? It's in the location where the temple would later be built. And so he's giving them the history here. And, and there's a lot about the, the temple. There's a lot about David wanting to build the temple. But in chapter 22, he's told, he can't do that. He has too much blood on his hands. But his son Solomon can build the temple. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, Solomon builds the temple. And then in chapter 7, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Now let's ask this question. Why does the chronicler give so much attention to the temple and to worship and the history of the temple? And the answer is, I think, because once again, his audience. His audience has has been exiled out of Jerusalem, the temple destroyed, the city destroyed. They've been returned. They've returned to Jerusalem to rebuild. They've started the rebuilding process and, and perhaps are pretty far along in the rebuilding. But we get the sense that they most likely look at the new building and the new temple and go, ah, oh, it's just not like the good old days. It's not like it was back in Solomon's day. It's not like Solomon's temple. I mean, yeah, it's a temple and we're grateful that we can be here and do this, but boy, it's not like what we heard about. And perhaps for some of them even have a memory of what Solomon's temple was like. And so they're probably experiencing a little bit of that, I don't know, this kind of, oh, you know, disappointment. Right? In fact, the, the, the prophet Haggai addresses this very issue. And they, they, they return to build and they start to build and there's excitement. Yeah, we're going to build the temple. And then after a while, they kind of realize oh, this isn't going to be quite like it used to be back in the good old days, the glory days. And they started to get discouraged and even stopped building at one point. And they have to be encouraged. No, 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 you need to build. You need to give attention to the temple and to worship. And I think, uh, you know, Haggai 2.9 says, actually, the latter glory of this house 
shall be greater than the former glory. In other words, there's a glory coming to this building that's going to be even greater than the former. And a lot of people think perhaps that happens when Jesus visits this temple and the very presence of God uh, is present in this very temple, the second temple. But I think the chronicler has a similar goal as Haggai. He wants to motivate his people. Keep being faithful, keep worshiping, keep focusing on the temple. And he's pointing them to the past and he's reminding them of the good old days when they, when they relocated the ark to Jerusalem. And that's when the psalm was originally spoken by David and, and that audience. And now, of course, the chronicler wants his people to, to read the psalm and think about David and think about bringing the ark and think about the past, certainly. But his goal is not to just focus and fixate on the good old glory days when David brought the ark. His purpose is to say, let's use this psalm today. Let's worship the Lord today. Ascribe to Him today. Remember Him today. Because the same God who was present at the first temple is the same God who's present at the second temple. And so they are to look at the past, but not to stay on the past. They are to look at the past to consider the present hope that they have. Kingdom hope. It's been a while uh, since I have been to a Razorback football game. But my memory, especially when you go to home games at halftime, they often refer to the 1964 Razorback football team. Now, why do you think they refer to the 1964 team? The answer is because that's when they won a national championship. Unfortunately, they have to go all the way back to 1964. You know, we're not like some of you guys. You can just remember a couple years ago. And we have to go back to the 64 team. And they always bring up, you know, some of the heroes of that team. And some of the heroes happen to be some familiar names, you know, Jerry Jones, uh, Jimmy Johnson, Ken Hatfield, who would go on and be a football coach at the Air Force Academy, actually. Uh, when, when you go to a basketball game, they always talk about 1994. I wonder why. Because that's the year they won the championship in basketball. And, and I think the reason for taking us to the past and always reminding us about 1964, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's, once again, it's sad, but true. Uh, I think their purpose in doing this is not just to get us to go, oh yeah, that was great, wasn't it? I think their purpose is to try to build a little camaraderie and, and establish tradition for the present. Like Maybe we can do it again. Why don't you give to the program? And maybe we'll you know, be more likely to do it again. And every year there's that sense of, maybe this is the year. You know, and then October rolls around. Okay, maybe next year. This is a rebuilding year, right? And basketball is just right around the corner. We've still got a shot in basketball, right? And then it's baseball. But I, I think, I think their reason is not so much about the past per se. I think the real motivation is, let's talk about the past to, to elicit a sense of, you know, we're unified. There's a tradition. Let's get excited. And we got something going on today. Let's get excited about today and what God is doing today. And, and I think the, the, the chronicler has a, that goal for his audience. And I think we should have the same goal in mind as we read the Bible. Of course, we read it with an eye to the past. And these are events that happened in the past. But, but we are very much a part of the people of God. And it's the same God who was doing this work in the past as the same God who continues to do His work in the present. And He's with us and He's among us and He has the same purposes and we are a part of that. We're a part of the genealogy, right? Grafted in, going back to Adam and going back to Abraham and going back to David. And it's good for us to remind ourselves of this. The same God who has been at work in the past is the same God who's at work today and means to accomplish His purposes through us.
The same God who rescued his people from Egypt from this miraculous exodus. The same God who gave his people Jerusalem and the temple and and David and Solomon. And the same God who, when they were in Babylon as exiles, rescued them and brought them out, a sort of a second exodus. The same God who, about 400 years later, would come in the person of Jesus and would visit this very temple. The same God who would raise His Son from the grave when He died for our sins. The same God who promises to return again is the same God who is present today among us, with us, within us. And the same God who did these things in the past is the same God who continues in the present with His people. And today we're actually going to take the Lord's Supper here in a little while. And I always like to point out, when we take the Lord's Supper, are we thinking about the past? Well, we certainly need to be. In fact, it's sometimes referred to as a memorial because we are remembering. We're remembering what happened 2,000 years ago. So it's definitely not less. It's not less than a memorial. It's not less than about what happened in the past. But it better be about more. In fact, this is sometimes referred to as a communion. With whom are we communing when we take the Lord's Supper? The answer is we better be communing with Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit. And we better be communing with one another as brothers and sisters in the family. Something's happening in the present when we take the Lord's Supper. Is it a reminder of the past? Absolutely. Is it about the past? Absolutely. But it's about that same God who raised Jesus from the grave, who sacrificed His Son on our behalf. That same God is here with us, among us, present, and wants to continue to do a work in us. So we have great hope, but our hope is rooted in the past. Now, let's talk about kingdom hope and the pattern. When we look at the past, we can't help but notice a certain pattern. And we talked about this pattern last week. And we're going to talk about this pattern again next week. And today we're going to talk about it briefly. And we said last week the pattern goes something like this. God blesses, and then we rebel. And then God warns us and says, you've rebelled, you're off track, you need to get back on track, you need to come back. And if you don't, there's serious consequences. And then we respond to God's warning. And then based on how we respond, that kind of determines how God responds. And, and so there's really two ways we can respond. When you hear the warning of God, there's two ways you can respond. And the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, describes these two ways this way. You can either seek God or you can forsake God. Those are the two options. Seek Him or forsake Him. We see the phrase, seek God, something like 20 times in First and Second Chronicles. We see the phrase, forsaking God, something like 15 times in First and Second Chronicles. And I just want to show you one particular example. Look at chapter 16, verse 11. Chapter 16, verse 11, he says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Now this is actually a verse that I have been meditating on this past week. This is a good one to memorize. Every once in a while you find a verse as you're reading. You say, I need to memorize this one. This is one right here. I've been chewing on it, meditating on it, using it every day. You know, it says, seek His presence. The reality is God is present everywhere. He's present equally everywhere. But we're supposed to live with an awareness of His presence. He is present here before me. So how should that 
change and affect and determine how I live. Right? There's an awareness. I'm, I'm living before the presence of God. And, and, and a lot of translations, most of the other translations actually say, seek His face continually. The ESV here says, seek His presence continually. But I'm supposed to live, we're supposed to live with this awareness that God is watching, that God cares. And we're supposed to live with the, I want to live in such a way that it pleases Him. That's what it means to seek Him, to seek His presence, to seek His strength. Hebrews 11.6 says it like this, Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If you want to draw near to Him, you have to believe that He rewards those who seek Him. So the options are clear. Seek Him or forsake Him. And the consequences are clear. Seek Him and be blessed. Seek Him and be rewarded, as the author of Hebrews says. Be awarded by living for Him. Or forsake Him, ignore Him, reject Him, and experience those consequences. And interestingly, David is charging his son Solomon, who's about to be the king, and, and gives him these two paths and says, you need to take the right path. You need to seek the Lord. Listen to the language in chapter 28, verse 9. He says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Let me read that last line again. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So seek him, obey him, and you'll find him. Now, does that mean he's lost? No. To find him means you will be in his presence in a special way if you seek him. Seek Him and be blessed. Seek Him and find Him. Forsake Him. And He says, He will cast you off forever. In other words, if you say, I'm just going to live how I want to live and I'm not going to live with an awareness that I'm living before God, live that way. That's forsaking Him and He will cast you off forever. So it's, it's, a, it's a two paths, two options. I don't play golf very often these days. Uh, I remember learning how to play as a kid. My dad taught me. And I think the way he learned, I think largely, was from reading golf magazines, which is probably not a great way to learn, and it might explain some of my lack of ability of playing golf. But he would have these, what he would call swing thoughts. And I don't know if he got these from the magazines or came up with it, I don't know. But when I would go to hit the ball, he would have these swing thoughts. Like, here's some things to be thinking about as you swing the golf club. And the ones that I still remember and still actually speak to myself whenever I do swing a golf club it included things like hold the club loosely. You know, I remember him specific, hold it like it's a bird. Hold the club loosely. And here's another one. Swing inside out. Those of you who are golfers understand this. Inside out, a little more draw. Outside in, a little more slice. You want draw. That'll make the ball go a little further. Right? Another one that, of course, is universal. Keep your eye on the ball. Right? Keep your eye on the ball. Watch the ball. And, and the other one that I still to this day... Speak to myself. Swing easy. Let the club do the work. Swing easy. You don't have to kill it. Right? And I often would just tell myself, swing easy, swing easy. And then all of a sudden I'm coming out of my shoes 
trying to hit the ball as far as I can. Whatever happened to the swing easy that I was just telling myself to do? But these swing thoughts, I think, are probably a good thing in, in a lot of sports. Remind yourself, tell yourself the, the, the fundamentals to keep doing them. And the same is true in the Christian faith. It's good to remind yourself of the swing thoughts of the Christian faith. I don't know if you have any of these, but it's good to have a few of these that you sort of keep reminding yourself, speak to yourself, tell yourself to remember what to do and how to think. And if you don't have any, here's a good one. Here's number one. Maybe number one on your list. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 11. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually or seek His face continually. So I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Try this out. It's a spiritual discipline. Take this verse and speak it to yourself later today, later this week, with whatever you're facing. You may be facing frustration. You may be just kind of down, disappointed. You may be being tempted. Right? And remind yourself, speak, speak this to yourself and ask, what does it look like for me right now in this situation to seek God's face? What does it look like for me in this circumstance to seek the presence of God, to live before Him with an awareness of Him? What does it look like for me to be faithful, to be obedient to Him right here, right now in this situation? He's watching. I'm living for Him. I'm responding for His sake. What does it look like for me to respond right now as unto the Lord? I think that's, a, I think that's how we take a, a verse like this and apply it. Kingdom hope is found in learning this pattern it's a pattern that says, seek Him, don't forsake Him. And this brings us to talk thirdly about kingdom hope and the promise. Another pretty big emphasis in these books is this, the idea of promise, promise of a king, promise of a kingdom, promise of a monarchy. These promises are going all the way back to Abraham. That's why in our psalm in chapter 16, he makes reference to the promise, the covenant. Remember the covenant. Remember Abraham. These promises of a king and a kingdom begin there with promises made to Abraham, and they are continued with David. The promises are continued, repeated, and even developed a little more with David. And, and he mentions these in chapter 17. And uh, these promises that he makes to David are repeated again in 1 Chronicles. We've already seen them in 2 Samuel 7. They're repeated again verbatim in Chronicles. Why? One answer is because that's how important it is. And because it's so important, I'm going to read it again. So let's look together at the promise made to David, 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11-14. through 14. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast, way, my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. If you remember the context, David says to God, I want to build you a house. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. In fact, I'm going to make you a house. 
In other words, I'm going to make you a kingdom. I'm going to make you a covenant. I'm, a, uh, I'm going to make you a, a monarchy. And uh, we talked about how this promise from God to, to, to David is partially fulfilled by Solomon as Solomon builds a temple. But this promise cannot be fully fulfilled by Solomon. Why? Well, one thing, Solomon dies. And after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits, and then the kingdom is exiled. Um, so, so who then is the son of David who is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of these promises? And the New Testament, one of the main claims of the New Testament is the answer is Jesus. He's the son of David who reigns on David's throne forever. And there's many places in the New Testament that are making that claim, and we even see that claim before Jesus is even born. When the angel appears to Mary and tells her you're going to have a son, the angel uses this language from this promise. And because it's so important, and because it's Christmas time, I'm going to read it again. Right. So listen to Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. The angel speaking to Mary, telling her she's going to have a baby. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. In other words, Mary, you're about to have a son. And he is going to be the fulfillment of the promises made to David. He's going to reign over Israel forever. He's going to rule on the throne of David forever. And she's got to be thinking, that sounds wonderful. But I mean, how could that possibly be? You know, for one, I'm not married. I'm a virgin. We know that. But she also has to be looking around at the political landscape and saying, Rome is very much on the throne right now. Rome is very much in charge and in control. Like, I, you know, we're, I'm about to be going to Bethlehem because Rome is requiring the census to be taken. And you're telling me David's about to have a son and I'm going to have David's son and he's going to be on the throne of God, on the kingdom forever as the forever king? Like, it's, it's hard to picture given the political landscape. And I, I got to think that the original recipients of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles have to be thinking along the same kind of lines as Mary, as they're being told and they're being reminded about these promises. This temple is going to be glorious, more glorious than the first temple, the Temple of Solomon. They have to be going hard to see. We don't have the resources. We don't have the the money. You know, we don't have any political clout in the world at all. Hard to picture. They have to be wrestling with this. And now they're being told and reminded that David's son, David has a son who's going to reign on the throne forever and he's going to rule as a monarch. There's going to be a monarchy established. The kingdom of God established on the earth, ruling forever. And they have to be looking around. And by the way, this is around the same time period that Rome is rising to great prominence and great dominance. And they're, they have to be looking at this and saying, that sounds wonderful, but really hard to see, really hard to picture, really hard to imagine. The kingdom of God established on the earth right now, ruling and reigning. Kind of hard to picture. But God's Word says it, so we'll cling to the promise. And I think you and I are probably in a pretty similar situation today. We are being told by God's Word, and therefore we believe it, that Jesus right now is reigning on the throne. 
and He's ruling over the cosmos. He's ruling over the creations. He's ruling over the nations. He's in control and nothing happens outside of of His his will because He's the King. And we're also told by the Bible that He's ruling right now through His church. Jesus right now is at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning in perfect control over the creation, over the world, ruling right now through His church. And I don't know about you, but if you're like me, I kind of look around and go, kind of hard to see. (laughs) Kind of hard to picture that. Doesn't really look like He's in control when I look around. Doesn't really look like the church is doing a lot when I look around. Much less Jesus ruling and reigning through His church over the world right now. It's hard at times to have this kind of kingdom hope. But it's good for us to be reminded we're not the first people to wrestle with this. We're not the first of God's people to to wrestle with this issue. And it's good to be reminded that there's a long history of God's people who are faithful wrestling with these very types of questions. And it's also good for us to look back and say, you know what, we have even more evidence today that, that God is in control and that He will fulfill His promises. Because we have more to the story. We can look back and see more of the revelation. And, and, and a part of what we see is Jesus, who of course not, is not only born, but He goes on to break the pattern. Remember the pattern we mentioned earlier? Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. Jesus kind of breaks that pattern. Why? Because He obeys. He seeks the face of God continually in every situation and does it perfectly. He obeys. And initially, He doesn't get blessing. Initially, He gets cursed at the cross. Why? He's doing that for us. We who have disobeyed and therefore deserve to be cast off can be brought in and forgiven and restored. Why? Because Jesus took the curse for us. And of course, He doesn't remain under the curse. Three days later, He rises again and conquers death. And and when He returns, when He comes back, He tells us, after He rises from the grave, He tells us, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to return for you. So He makes this promise that we can cling to. Just as He came before, so He will come again. And on the day He comes again, the Bible says, the trees, are going to, the trees of the forest are going to sing for joy. It actually references that in our psalm. Psalm 16.33. That's the day when Jesus returns. The King returns. The King returns to make things right. And that's the day that we're looking forward to. That's what our hope is in. Our hope is in that day when the King returns and, and sets up shop and rules over the new heavens and the new earth. And until then... What are we supposed to be doing? I think the book of Hebrews summarizes well what we're supposed to be doing. Listen to Hebrews 10, 23-25. We are told to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's what we're doing here. That's why we're gathered together. We're here to meet together and just simply encourage each other to love and good works until the day appears. And cling to His promises and encourage each other to have great, powerful kingdom hope 
And one of the ways we do this as a New Testament church is by taking the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take the Supper this morning. I ask you to not, don't, don't, don't close your Bibles quite yet. Keep listening. Because right? this is very important. No stirring. Right? For some reason, every time at that point, everybody starts stirring when I mention the Lord's Supper. So, uh, Thank you for not. Um, it's a good reminder as we take the Lord's Supper, Jesus gave us this meal. And when He gave us the meal, He told us the different elements symbolize different things. The, 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 body, or the, the body is symbolic, is symbolized by the bread. And, and the cup symbolizes His blood. And when we take these elements, when you put the bread in your mouth and when you drink the cup, it, it's symbolic of your faith. That symbolizes that you're trusting in Jesus. So when we take this meal this morning, we are saying something. We are saying we are clinging to the promise of God that we are right with God because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for us at the cross. So as we take this meal, think about that. We are saying something. We are making a statement. We're saying, God, and we're saying it to one another, by the way. We take it as a church family. Right? It's, not, it's, not an it's not merely an individual thing. It's a family thing. We're saying, we are trusting in Jesus Christ for our right standing with God. And when Jesus gave His disciples this meal, He also pointed to the future because He said, guys, I'm not going to take this meal with you again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, when I return for you and the trees sing for joy, and that day this meal will be fulfilled and we, His people, will share this meal with Him. And as we take this meal, we take it with an eye toward that day. We take it with hope. That's our hope that Jesus is going to return and we're going to have this meal with Him one day. And as we take this meal, we are saying something. We are saying we are clinging to the promises of God that He will not leave us as orphans, that He will return for us, and we will eat this meal with Jesus one day in the kingdom of God. And by taking this meal, we are saying that until then, until that day, we will be the people who live with kingdom hope. And we will be the people who live seeking His face. Trying, obviously not perfect, but we will, we will try to live our lives before Him. We will try to encourage one another to love and good works until the day when King Jesus returns. So because this meal is symbolic and it's, it's us saying something, it's a declaration. Once again, we're saying we're trusting in Jesus Christ for our right standing with God. We are trusting Jesus Christ is going to return one day as the King. We are, we are committing to live faithfully with kingdom hope until that day. Because we are saying these things by taking this meal, we ask that you only take it if you can say these things. In other words, if you're a believer in good standing with a New Testament church. Otherwise, we would ask you to not take these elements this morning. So because of this, I want to give you a few moments to examine, confess, reflect, pause. Make sure you can take this meal in a manner that's worthy. If you don't yet have the elements, they are available at the back, so you are welcome to go get them. You only need one cup. It has both the bread and the, the, the juice in it. So if you'd like to go do that, you can go do that now. For the rest of us, let's bow our heads and prepare and examine, and then I'll pray for us and lead us from there.